coming to you live from Canada. Here comes your game-changing, life-transforming, turning point moment. <clears throat> yes, this is the sign you've been looking for. You're listening to Engage City Church. Powered by hope, not hype. Online at engagechurch.ca. The other thing is that today is uh, daylight savings time. And I don't know if the rest of you feel the same way I do, but it literally feels like for the past six months, I've been tired, and today is the first day that I'm not tired. Like, does it feel like that to you too? It feels great. I, I love the fall version of Daylight Savings. Now let's never change it and leave it like this forever so that there's not going to be grumpy people in the spring. So today I'm uh, going to be preaching out of Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, who's got a Bible? Ooh, man, we've, we've dropped. Okay, okay, there's a few of them, there's a few of them. So if you get a Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So we've been going through a series called Timeless the past few weeks, and I'm actually not preaching on the Timeless sermon series because Pastor Brett said, okay, Seb, uh, your choices for the Timeless series are you can either talk about hell or you can answer people's really hard questions. And I was like, how about I preach on Ephesians instead and uh, you deal with those the next few weeks. So it's going to tie in a little bit to Pastor Brett's series as well as um, what Pastor Ryan said on on Wednesday night. So let's dig right in. So Ephesians 2, and we're going to read verses 1 to 10 that are going to show up on the screen. So once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of this grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do all the good things he planned for us long ago. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you are here with us today. We thank you that even though one of the heaters went out, that there's another one that's working and that we're nice and warm in here. God, we pray that you would just open our, our, our hearts and our ears, God, to hear you today. Lord, that um, even though it's a simple message, Lord, that there would be deep truths that could come out of it, and that would change our lives, God, and that would change our perspective, Lord, and that would change our identity, that we would find our identity in what you've done, God. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your love, for dying on the cross for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So anyone who's been coming to church for any amount of time has probably heard the word from stage, dichotomy. Now, when I was younger, I heard this word dichotomy like a million times, and honestly, I had no idea what dichotomy meant. But what dichotomy means, and why it's thrown around the church a lot, is it's a division or contrast between two things that are represented as being opposite or entirely different. 
or in English, it means two things that are opposite that show the contrast between themselves. In the church, um, we have often we have struggled with temptation. Uh, we have struggled with what doing what we want uh, instead of what the Bible says, or sometimes doing what the Bible says uh, instead of what we want. But what can happen so easily is that there can actually be a tension that builds up within us, right? There's this tension between what we want to do and what God wants us to do. And we struggle with this, and, and, and that's kind of the Christian life. We're struggling with this. We're, we're trying to work through this, and, you know, sometimes we fail, and sometimes we're doing great. But what can happen is that our motivation for doing the right thing can actually become the wrong motivation, and it brings us back over here to doing the wrong thing. So over the past six months, I don't know if you guys remember, who was here when I did my, uh, my coffee-making Chemex on stage? Who was here that Sunday? Okay, so a bunch of you guys were here. So since that Sunday, I've had to go back to the drawing book because the two people I gave that coffee to just said that they didn't like it, okay? And it rattled my whole universe because I thought it was a great cup of coffee. I did everything I could. I bought all the equipment, but it still wasn't good enough. So I had to go back to the drawing board. And... So about six, the last six months, I started really digging into like what makes good coffee. And what I found out is that during the extraction of coffee, uh, if the water's too hot or the water's too cold, it's either going to be over or under extracted. As well, if your grind is too fine or your grind is too big, you're going to have the same problem. And what happens is when you either get an under extraction or an over extraction is you either get coffee that's too acidic or you get coffee that's too bitter. Those are the two things. And, you know, too acidic or too bitter, that doesn't sound like two great things. You kind of just want sweet, right? But what happens is when you meet this, this perfect balance between the acidic and between the bitter, right here in the middle, that is good coffee. That is a sweet spot in coffee. Now, it's considered a perfect cup of coffee. But what's interesting is that the perfect cup is found somewhere in the tension between the acidic and the bitter. It's not found on one extreme or the other, but in the exact middle. Now, I think that the people that I gave the coffee to don't actually know what good coffee is. They probably put those like flavored creamers in, and they're like, doesn't matter what the coffee tastes like, I can always get the sweet spot with that van French vanilla flavor, right? Well, you don't like coffee. You like French vanilla cream, and you want an excuse to drink it. So. When I was a kid, I tried to make my coffee as similar to coffee-flavored ice cream as possible. So I'd have like a full cup of cream and then like three drips of coffee, and it would just be amazing. But that's not coffee. That's not good coffee. Good coffee's found somewhere in the tension between acidic and bitter. So when we read Ephesians 2, we can see that grace is a free gift that only requires faith. It's something that's unearned and undeserved, but what God freely blesses us with. When we dig a little deeper into these scriptures, we can see actually a tension begin to form. So when we read this, the, the, the passage is actually divided into four different parts. The first part is verses 1 to 3, which described what we were in the past. Verses 4 to 6 describes what we are in the present. And verse 7, what we will be in the future. But then there's, there's one more part, verses 8 to 10, that actually explain how God views us in this tension. So let's start with verses 1 to 3. So we're going to read this, this, these verses over and over again until we get it kind of right in there and, and we can remember what it means. So Ephesians, verses, uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the, in the trespasses 
and sins in which, you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, when Paul writes this, we have to take everything in context, right? We've talked about this so many times. Everything has to be taken in context. If we just take this, we're like, okay, who are the sons of disobedience? What does it even mean to be a son of disobedient? If I'm a girl, does that mean that I'm not disobedient? No, none of those things are right. What it means is you look to chapter one, and in chapter one, Paul talks about God adopting us as his children, as his sons and daughters as well. And so as adopted into the family, we have now been given the family name. We've now been given all the blessings of the family. We've been given the inheritance of the family. But what Paul's saying here in verse 2 is that we are following the prince of power of the air. Or in other words, I don't know what it says on here, but yeah, the, the other version said the devil. We're following what the powers of darkness want in us. And we are the sons of disobedience. And so what that means is we've been adopted, right? We've been adopted as children of God, but just like any natural parents with kids, your kids can disobey you. They can do whatever they want. If they're disobeying you, they're doing whatever they want, they're going off and you know, doing all the things you don't want them to do, that doesn't mean they're not part of your family still. They're still part of your family, but they're considered sons of disobedience. See, Paul's kind of hearkening back to that in chapter one where he explains that we are adopted as children. We're kind of, we were rebellious kids who have been offered Everything, but we decided to turn away and do our own thing. When we reject Christ's adoption for us, we are rejecting all that he has planned for us and all the inheritance that comes along with that. Paul speaks about us being predestined predestined as children of God. Now, I'm not going to go into a whole predestination sermon because that's another one that I will leave for Pastor Brett. Um, But what that means is that before time, he saw us and he saw the potential that we have. He saw who we are, who will be at the start and who will be at the end and all the potential that we could possibly have as his children, as his adopted children. Now, when we go our own way, when we're sons of disobedience, when we're daughters of disobedience, when we're going our own way, all that potential that he has for us is lost because we are doing our own thing. We're going our own way. And the amazing thing is that's who we were before Christ, before what he did for us. But now we get to move into the present. And when we're reading uh, when we're reading the Bible and the Bible says at any point, but God, you know that the whole tone has changed, that everything is changing. It means, listen up, this is important. So Ephesians 2, 4 to 6 starts with, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has accepted us as we are. He accepted us when we were sons of disobedience. He died for our sins when we were there. And in fact, sometimes when we, in fact, we are not worthy currently. It's not because of what we can possibly do that makes God extend his love to us. But it's exactly because he is love that he extends it to us when we don't deserve it. I'm sure every single person in this place knows that because what's the one verse that every single person has memorized? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
So God comes and he welcomes us into his family. He accepts us as his children, and he provides us all the blessings that we could ever want or need. He imparts the Holy Spirit upon us that is a guarantee. So this past Wednesday, who was here at DNA night? See those hands? Okay, DNA night was awesome. It's going to be happening a few times a year. So next DNA night, you should all come out. It was amazing. Pastor Ryan came from Calgary, and he actually spoke on the, the end of Ephesians 1. And so he, he spoke about um, the Holy Spirit being a guarantee of the inheritance that we have. And what does it mean that the Holy Spirit has been put on us? It, he says, the Holy Spirit has been put inside us to open the eyes of our heart. See, this is the timeless this is the timeless thing that Brett's been talking about. He opens the eyes of our hearts so that we can see what he has for us, not just now, but even into the future. He explained what it means um, to understand that Christ, who Christ is and what he did for us, and from that, that we can move forward in faith. As Christians, we're not just called to just be asleep, to be stagnant. We're called to ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts so that we know where to move and how to move forward. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is so crucial. The Holy Spirit, which is inside of each of us upon salvation, doesn't require anything later. You don't have to say, abracadabra, Holy Spirit, enter me. That was pretty blasphemous, so don't say that, okay? When you give your heart to God, the Holy Spirit is in you right then and there, instantly. At the, at the single moment, he is in you. But what this is saying is that as the Holy Spirit is in you, he is a guarantee of our inheritance, which means we don't have to worry about tomorrow. We don't have to worry about what's happening in the future. We don't have to worry about next week's sermon when Pastor Brett talks about hell because we have a guarantee within us that is our inheritance. That's the Holy Spirit guarantee that we will be with him. But as part of that guarantee, we know that we are still waiting for the full inheritance. How does this frame our thinking differently? It makes us continue growing our faith in Christ. It means that as we continue along, we don't just see what he did at one point, but we see how the inheritance is being revealed and will be fully revealed. 1 Peter 1.5 says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When we think of this in relation to what Paul says, that we were in verse 1 to 3, we understand that God is in the midst of transforming our lives through his grace. So that brings us to verse 7, the future. Verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Pastor Brett's been talking about this timeless series, right? About, you know, we, we shouldn't just frame our whole world as what's happening now. We should frame it as what our inheritance is, what the future is going to bring, what, what God has planned for us. And this is talking about that. It says that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in loving kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. You know when you're like super proud of something? Does everyone have something they've been like super proud of? Like sometimes it's like a kid. Sometimes it's like, you know, a house. Uh, in my case, I just bought this jacket, this winter jacket that I'm just like super stoked about, okay? It's like... I mean, if I wasn't wearing anything underneath it, it'd pretty much be a dress because it, like, goes so low. 
But it's just like one of those business jackets that you see these guys wearing downtown and you're like, that guy is probably like a lawyer, just like so successful and I'm wearing the jacket. So now I'm a lawyer and I'm successful. Not really. But I have this jacket, I bought it, and uh, I actually bought it in spring because it was a great spring sale. Um, Got a great discount on it, which is why I'm not a lawyer. I can't afford that stuff. And so I bought this jacket, and I wore it for the first day the other day. And when I got home, I was feeling real good in it, and I saw that the driveway needed to be shoveled. And so what would make the most sense if you have a nice jacket that a lawyer would wear downtown is to go inside, change out of that nice jacket into a jacket that's a piece of garbage, then go back outside and shovel because you don't want to wreck said jacket. But I was feeling so good in this jacket, I just let it, let it go. You know, I just left it on and I went outside and I shoveled my whole driveway with this super swanky jacket. And the reason I did this is because I wanted people that were driving by to see me and think, wow, that guy's got a nice jacket and he's doing yard work. That guy's got it all going on. We've all had something in our life that you just, you're just dying to show someone. You're dying for someone to see this thing. And I'm like a guy who just like, I love words of affirmation. I'm still working on my cousin. She does not love words of affirmation, so she's not great at them, but she's working on it. That was an anti-word of affirmation. I'm sorry about that. But words of affirmation, like, are my thing, right? So I just want someone to be like, man, that was amazing. That jacket looks so good. Now, if I actually have a crazy enough neighbor to pull over and be like, hey, nice jacket, I think I have problems, so that wouldn't be good. But we've all had that thing that we want to show off. And what, what Paul is saying in verse 7 here is that we are that incredible jacket. We are the thing that God shows off in the future. We are, you know, we are the prized possession that God has. We are, we, are, we are the prized possession that he'll show in the age to come. It's not because of anything we did. In fact, we could be like, we're actually like an old tattered coat, a piece of garbage coat that he's actually taken and transformed into something amazing and beautiful. So now we arrive at verses uh, 8 to 10, and these are the verses that really, really hit me this week. These are the verses that, um, that kind of spurred this whole sermon, but so let's read through it. So it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, here's the tension that we feel. This is the tension between the acidic and the bitter. This is where we're trying to find the sweet spot. When I was growing up, I grew up in a family that was really hardcore when it came to, like, working and being, like, task-oriented. Like, if I was sick, I would tell my mom, if I was sick, she'd be like, okay, you're sick, then you're going to stay in bed all day, you're not going to talk to any friends, you're not going to go on the internet, you're going to stay in bed and get better, and then tomorrow you're going to get up and you're going to go to work and do all your stuff. There was no, you know, oh, you're sick. Okay, you can stay home and play video games. Like that's, you're not gonna get better playing video games. Come on, people. And so this is the family I grew up in. And we were, they were always so hardcore about tasks and to-do lists. And we would try to do things really well. But I realized that because of this mindset growing up, I've been unable to understand faith by grace in the measure that I should be able to. I can so easily get caught up doing all the right things, but forget why I'm doing them, what my motivation is. Many of us can kind of relate to this mindset. 
We are a result-driven society. Growing up in school, kids that received good marks were praised, and those that received bad marks were reprimanded. It made us tie our worth to how we performed. But then there's others in here who, like me in school, couldn't really cut it. Um, You maybe get marks that were above other people, but just not as good as you should be doing. And so... In my family, my, uh, my aunt and uncle actually came up with this genius plan. My uncle's a, a principal, so, you know, he's just looking for all the ways to motivate his, his students so that his school rises to, like, the top of the academic, you know, academic list. So they came up with this plan just, just for their kids, and then my parents adopted it. And the plan was that they had this, like, big, like, this, this sheet with all these rules on it. And the rules were, like, if you got over 70%, then you would get this much money. And if you get over 80%, you get this much money. And if you get over 90%, you get this much money. And there was all these rules that were just like, it was crazy. You could make some serious cash if you did things right. Now, um, my parents implemented this system mainly for me because I know I could get 70s and some 80s. I'd be fine at school, but they wanted me to do my best. And if I'm completely honest, I was more interested in social life than I was in social studies. And so they implemented this thing just for me. So we started this thing off. We got our report cards, and we calculate all the money that we would get. And my calculation would usually take about five minutes. Uh, I'd have the 70% money, and then maybe one 80%, and that's it. And then I look over at my brother, and my brother's got an advanced calculator out doing logarithms, finding out how many millions he's going to be making because he's like 99% in everything. So I'm pretty sure he just told my parents to give him their bank card, and then he was, he was good. But what I found out is that there was a loophole in the system. And being a middle child, I'm going to find the loophole. And I'm going to stretch that loophole wide open so that everyone can use this loophole. And the loophole was that if you increased your percentage from one semester to the next semester, you would get paid a pretty decent amount of money based on what the percentage was. So... You know, my brother, a first child, what he would probably do is be like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to increase my percentage from 99 to 100, so I get paid for this. Me being the middle child said, oh, I'm getting 78s right now. What I should do is next semester get as low of marks as I possibly can get so that the semester after I can increase them by 30% and get all the money. And so, you know, I actually did this. Um, I dropped my grades and in order to get money. So my parents' genius plan to make me work harder completely backfired. And let me tell you, I got paid. So it worked. But I don't think my parents were too, too stoked that the system had backfired in that monumental way. The crazy thing is this is kind of like our lives with Christ. This is kind of like what happens when Christ accepts us and his family. He, he gives us his grace to motivate us to do good things, but what happens is sometimes we can take that grace and we can take all that's required of us and all that's asked of us and just feel like it's just too much. I'm gonna do the opposite thing and I'm just gonna stop trying for a while so that I can look like I'm doing a lot better rather than just asking God to give me all that I need to increase from where I was. Ephesians 2.8 says that for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So what are the implications of this? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? Well, I believe that half of this room, or more than half of this room, at some point, when they became a Christian, or when God touched their life, they, they started seeking God. They started doing all that they could, all the right things, in order to please God. And then there's the other half of the room that, you know, they felt like they were good. They felt like, you know, you, know, you meet those people, and you're like, they're like the nicest people ever, and just like, their moral standard is so much higher than yours, and like they just like believe in like universalism and all these things. You're like, what? Like, how are you this good of a person? Like Haley was like that. My wife was like that before she was a Christian. She was just like super good person, and her moral standard was like so high. And yet, when you become a Christian, God doesn't just want us to stay in the same place. He wants us to keep on moving forward. So if we do all the right things, but we don't have the right motivation, it can quickly make us believe that what we do gives us worth. Ephesians speaks so clearly here that it's by faith, by grace that brings us salvation, nothing else. But then on the flip side, there's some in this room that feel like they've kind of gotten there, that they're just, you know, they feel like they're doing what they can. And when I was reading on this verse, something I never realized hit me. Just as God doesn't force himself upon anyone to be accepted, so he also doesn't force himself upon us to do good works. Or in other words, when we become a Christian, God does not force us to become better people. He doesn't make us do good works. And some of you are probably thinking the same thing I did, that this is pure blasphemy. But hear me on this. God does not guarantee that we will do good works upon salvation. He does guarantee that we have eternal future. He does promise that we have spiritual gifts. He promises that he will help us. But our free will allows us to choose whether or not we will actually become more like God. Dr. Thomas Constable said, good works are not the root from which salvation grows, but the fruit that God intends it to bear. This verse does not say that Christians will inevitably walk in the good works that God has freed us from sin's penalty and power to pursue. God has saved us so we can do works that are good in his sight, but this is obviously only part of his purpose in saving us. He also saved us to take us to heaven. He is guaranteed that all who trust in his son will reach heaven, He's not guaranteed that all who trust in Jesus will persevere in good works. That depends on our obedience. So the Holy Spirit within us directs us to become more like Christ. But if we want, we can ignore that and go our own way and direct our own lives. A pastor can come up on a Sunday and preach a word and we can go home and just ignore everything that was said. And while all of us here understand how terrible of an attitude that is and how the Bible tells us that our fruits will show us who is a follower of Christ and who is not, we can so easily fall into this very thing. And so what is this very thing actually? What is the name of this thing? Because it doesn't necessarily just look like running the opposite way. It doesn't look like purposely not doing something. What it actually, what the word is that actually defines it is complacency. Complacency is knowing what Christ did for us and not doing anything about it. It's unfortunate, but many of our growth to become more like Christ comes when we are having a rough time in life, which forces us to turn towards God. Prayer is not an emergency measure that we turn to God when we have a problem. Real prayer is a part of our constant communion with God and worship of God. It's similar to when someone has like a major health concern, right? It's like if you're, if you're eating like my, my, 
I don't know why this came to my mind. My dad's uncle, they called him Uncle Phlegm because he always had this crazy phlegm build up in his throat and they said he would like take the salt shaker's lid off and pour salt on his, on his food. So this guy had some serious problems, obviously. But he didn't always have the problems. At the start, it didn't look like a problem, but eventually he got to the point where he was now known as Uncle Phlegm. He had to go to the hospital. He had all kinds of problems because he didn't treat the problems at the start. That's what living with complacency is like. That's what living just hoping that the next day is all right is like. But here's the problem, okay? This is the tension that I've been talking about, is that we don't earn anything through works. But as we increase in faith, our works naturally increase. Not out of a heart of trying to earn anything, but as the fruit of maturity of our character. So when I wrestle with this tension, what conclusions do I find? What conclusions can we find today? I believe that God wants to transform our thinking in three ways. The first way that God wants to transform our thinking is that he wants us to find our identity in him. This whole passage in Ephesians, the whole verses 1 to, 1 to 10, you know, even Ephesians 1, all of Ephesians is talking about who we are, our identity, who God has made us to be. It's not because of anything we did, but because of God's love and grace that we've been accepted through faith. And as we step out in faith, showing love to others, we'll begin moving in good works. Now, as I said, I've come from a, a background of works-based theology. So there's always needs to be this tension that we're asking ourselves why we do what we do. Am I serving in this ministry because I want God to like me more? Am I going for coffee with this person because I sinned last week and I need to get back in God's good books? Or is it because God first loved me and poured out his grace upon me that I serve others to be a representation of my father? That's where identity is so important. If we understand that we are part of the family, then we're gonna start looking like the family. If we understand that God is our father, that he has bestowed all the blessings upon us, then we will start looking more like the family. We're gonna go and we're gonna approach people with that family hospitality that we have. I'm sure many of us have traditions in our family. Many of us have, you know, something that our family had trained us to do. When I was growing up, my mom taught me how to answer the phone. And I was like, I wish I could remember what I used to say. Like a little kid, and I was like, hi, my name's Sebastian Murda. It's nice to talk to you. How are you doing today? I don't know what I said, honestly. That was terrible. Um, but my mom taught me how to answer the phone. And all of these people would say, wow, your kids are so great on the phone to my mom. And why did she train us to be that way? Because she, we are a representation of her. We are a representation of the family. We are a representation of all that they worked for. And just like with us answering the phone, we are a representation of God. We are a representation of Christ. When we've been adopted into the family, we should start looking like the family. Not because we need to somehow get into the family. We're already accepted into the family. But as being accepted into the family, we need to begin looking more like the family. So the second way to transform our thinking is to allow God's voice to be the loudest. So when I, when I, was telling, when I started that uh, school payment system that I was talking about earlier, I was allowing my voice to be the loudest. I didn't think about the whole point of what my parents were trying to get across to me. They weren't trying to just find a way to give me money. I'm sure as a parent, you're not trying to look for ways to give your kids money. They were trying to find a way to motivate me to be better. 
When it comes to our daily lives, our worship of God, our character, the fruit of the Spirit, are we just trying to be good enough on our own and failing? Or are we looking to our Father who speaks into our brokenness and failure and makes us something amazing? See, when I do what Seb wants to do, I'm a big jerk. But when I do what God wants me to do, when I listen to his desires and not my desires, he makes me look a lot better. He makes me more like him. When I make myself smaller and listen to God's voice and directions, that's when I become an ambassador of the family name and show others God's love. The third way to transform our thinking is to remember when we fail that God has accepted us even before we tried. See, this is the perfect middle. This is somewhere in between that bitter and that acidic. This is the sweetness that you can find in the exact middle. That nothing that I can do can ever attain to God's glory. Nothing that I can ever do is good enough, but I am good enough because of what he did already. That's so important for us to understand because if we live our lives trying to succeed based on works, trying to, to just do the right things all the time and, and be the right person because of who we are, we're doing the same thing that people out in the world are doing. We're doing the same thing that people with a high moral compass are doing. We're trying to do it for ourselves. That's pride. That's, that's making ourselves look good rather than representing the family name. Why don't we get the band back up here? When we fail, we know that we can get back up again and learn to love the way that Christ loved us first. And when this is our thinking, it will correct our identity issues. It will correct our wrong thinking, trying to work to be accepted. And we will instead come from a place of unconditional, eternal, timeless acceptance. Romans 12.1 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. All of us are either, either air on the side of acidic or air on the side of bitter. All of us have that natural tendency to either be complacent or to be works-driven. We all struggle with this. That is what life is about. It's about struggling. It's about finding the middle ground. It's about finding that sweet spot. And so... Today, I just want to encourage you if, you, if you're like me and you grew up in a work-based environment where, where you're just trying to attain things, you're trying to, to look good maybe, refocus your thinking, re, refocus who you are and understand that you are first a child of God, you are first adopted, you are first been given the Holy Spirit as, a, a, as an inheritance, as a guarantee of the inheritance. That is first. That is always first. That's where our motivation needs to come from. And if you're on the other side and you just feel like, you know what? The bar is set too high. The standards are too high. I can't make it. And because I can't make it, I'm just going to bomb this semester so that next semester I can do better. If that's you, God wants to come alongside you and say, it's not about how good you are. It's not about how much you've done. It's because I love you and that love can motivate you to grow and to do good works and to be a representation of Christ. See, the tension that we find in here is right, right in verses 2, 8 to 10. He starts, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that 
you may boast. And then he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He wants us to look more like him. He wants us to to follow after him. And he wants to give us all the gifts that he already has given us, he's bestowed upon us. We just need to walk out into those things and realize that it's not because of what we've done, but because of what he did first. You've been listening to the Engage Life, powered by Engage City Church. If you like what you heard, check out engagechurch.ca.